Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Our scripture reading for today is Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The grass withers and the flowers fade. All right. Thanks, Garth. Good morning. Uh, honestly, if we had known all of you were going to be here, we would have planned something outdoors. Um, but we decided, at Murphy's in full effect this morning, so my sermon didn't transfer to my iPad, and it's just all, all good. Um, but we decided that since, for our, for our 16th anniversary or birthday, we decided to take you on a fully immersive church planting experience of what it's like to plant a church, change everything, throw things into a trailer, get them back out of a trailer, uh, change everything at the last minute, set up chairs early on a Sunday morning, try to figure everything out, throw food all over the lobby, let kids go crazy, and yeah, so you're welcome. You've all, and free of charge, like we didn't even charge tickets for this. All right, um, I'm glad you're here. Let me, let, let me just let you know uh, if we do have a, a couple of KR rooms of, available, not like fully functioning, but available if you need, if, if kids or, or certain adults need a place to just like bang into walls and run around a little bit, that's available. But I am going to try to keep this reasonably short, although that now that we're inside in this beautiful moderate 69 degree weather, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'll expand it a little bit. Um, but kids, I do have you in mind this morning. We're going to start with a little science lesson. All right, so you can go tomorrow. I know all of you are thrilled. Uh, we're going to go tomorrow. You can go uh, back to school tomorrow and, and uh, impress your, your friends and your teachers with, with what you know. Um, is anybody, I, there's certain people that I wonder if they're familiar with this person. A, a man by the name of Donald Hebb. Anybody know Donald Hebb? All right. Uh, Donald Hebb was Canadian. He was a neuropsychologist and he worked in the area of associative learning. Okay? Now, you're gonna have to stay with me for a second because I'm talking out of my field. Uh, and I understand these concepts actually pretty well, 
but I'm going to use words that I have no business using, okay? So just hang with me uh, and wait for the application. So the term for brain cells and just how adaptive and regenerative they are is a term called neuroplasticity, all right? People familiar with that, that frame? All right, so here's what happens. Um, in the last 30 to 40 years, it's been discovered that the brain uh, and, and the neurons in the brain are actually far more adaptive than what they were previously assumed to be. Um, rewired and reworked, which is a new discovery. So every time a neuron fires, it travels down a path that has been worn out for it. Now, where do these initial paths come from? They come in when we're young. Come, they come from when we learn initially how to cope with struggle or stress or success or problems. And so the first time uh, a kid calls you a name in fourth grade and, and you try to cope with that in a certain way, that forms a pathway that then becomes a default. This is where addiction comes from, where you learn how to cope with rejection or hurt or pain or stress or success. And it goes down a certain pathway. And before too long, you notice you're doing that pathway even without the trigger. Okay? Um, so a neuron, whenever it fires, it takes the path of least resistance and travels that pathway. And for a long time, it was just kind of thought that that was default and that's what happened and there was no real way uh, to change your mode of thinking and consequently behaving. Uh, behaving. However, Donald Hebb helped to discover uh, this thing which is called the Hebb's axiom. Anybody ever heard of that? All right. If, if you've... If you've uh, if you've read uh, Kurt Thompson, uh, The Soul of Shame, if you haven't read The Soul of Shame, I would highly encourage it. If you have not, if you have, that's great. If you haven't, I would encourage it. That's what I meant to say. Um, but Hebb's axiom basically says uh, you are not doomed to those patterns of thought or those patterns of behavior. You can actually, through practice and repetition and focusing on on uh, a new pattern of behavior, you can form new neuropathways. And what his famous saying that he has is neurons that, if, if, if you know this, neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you begin to associate stress, not with going to the cupboard and finding a box of Twinkies and a half pint of ice cream, which you probably shouldn't keep a half pint of ice cream in your cupboard. But if you start to associate stress with, say, prayer or meditation or calling a friend, through practice, you can actually change your default mindset and pattern of behavior. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. This is called Hebb's axiom. And, and basically, what he finds is we actually become what we spend our time and energy 
and passion focusing on. He discovered this in the 40s. Now, if you want a pretty good argument for the sinful nature of humans, mine would suggest how many of us really need time and effort and focus on bad habits? Anybody? Is anybody like, you know what? I really need to work on eating my anxiety. Nobody? Really? All right. Um, or, or, yeah, or like thinking through rejection and panic and just walking in like, I am terrible, I'm horrible, nobody loves me, and, right? We don't, most of us don't need, most of us aren't sitting here going, you know, my biggest problem is that I exercise too much. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm very healthy about how I take care of my body, and if I could just get a break from that, right? The things that we need help practicing on, I would argue because of our sinful nature, are the healthy and holy practices. What God through Moses gives to the people of Israel here, and therefore to all who follow him, in these, in, in these verses, what he gives uh, in the greatest commandment is that we are to practice this, to devote ourselves to it, to let it drip from every facet of our lives, and this, that this is the most critical thing for us to remember in any and every circumstance. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, Jesus is going to add mind, and, and I, there's a pretty good idea of why he adds that later, but we'll get to that in a minute. But we need to practice this. So this command is called the, anybody know? Shema. Shema, which is Hebrew for hear. And I've said this a few times. Moses uses that word hear a lot. Hear, listen. It doesn't just mean take in information. It means take this in and respond. This information should change you. This becomes the prayer of the Jewish people morning and evening for thousands of years. So three quick points that we're going to go through. Listen, love, and because. All right? So... We'll start in verse 4. If you want to open your Bibles there, it'd be good. This is a great chapter to read and dive into. But Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 starts with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the first point, listen. Now, if you remember the backdrop of what's going on here, we talked about this last week. There are, um, the, the, the thought of the day is polytheism. Multiple gods, multiple agendas, multiple gods to please and make happy, not from like a moral perspective, but like, I don't want to make them mad perspective, because if it's mad, then the crops will be bad, our life will be bad, and so there's no pathway, no god ever said, this is how you please me, They're just, they, it, the, the general thought was just, keep me happy, and things will go well for you, okay? So if you can think of like a very temperamental boss that has high expectations of you and never tells you what they are. And this is your worship life. Okay? That's the way it was. And what, what, what God is introducing here through the Ten Commandments, through Moses, 
uh, out of Israel in the time of, uh, uh, in the wilderness, and then here again, is that Israel need not neither fear nor worship other gods because they simply don't exist. They have no function. They have no power. Um, and so Israel doesn't need to fear or practice the ways of Baal or Ashtoreth. The nations that confess these gods are no danger to Israel because their God is the one God. And he has power, and he's demonstrated it to them. But this is, this is important. The goal of this, the end goal is not simply that God is one. The end goal is not monotheism. All right? Monotheism means one God. Um, as opposed to polytheism or pantheism, the goal is not simply that, that the nations would become monotheistic. In our day, we're, we're largely monotheistic, right? Most of us don't say there's a tree god and there's a sun god and there's, a, there's a, a, a god of the skies and there's a god of the seas. Most of us have a sense of monotheist, a monotheism, sort of. Uh, so the end goal is not that necessarily toward monotheism, that, that there is one god, although this is true and this is going to require a monumental mind shift for all of the people of Israel. The goal is that there is one God, and this God is Yahweh. There is one God, and we actually know who he is. He has actually made himself known. He's actually knowable. Uh, and, and our God is God alone. Um, and again, this is important because he has made himself Known. He has told them, this is what I desire from you. He has protected them. He has delivered them. He tells the people, I love you. I have delivered you. And this is what being in relationship with me looks like. Because he has revealed himself. Um, yeah, this God, the God that revealed himself, is our God. And he is one. Uh, now, We'll, we'll, rest with the, we'll wrestle with the Trinity on another day. Uh, what you need to know here is that it, it is not, the, the word, the Hebrew word used here, um, echad, is actually, it's a compound complex word. It doesn't mean singular. It does allow for a compound understanding of one. Trinity is not multiple gods. It's one God and three persons. So we're just covering our bases there. Everybody get that real quick. All right. So if somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, because that does, it does kind of bring up that issue. Uh, but I want to make that known. Um, uh, and, and the idea of God making himself known, the God who reveals himself, revealing himself so much that he actually reveals himself in the best way we could understand, which is one of us in human form. That's brilliant. That's amazing. The incarnation, the person and work of Jesus. So we're going to set that on one of those sides here. All right? But for Israel... This is what Moses is saying. Hear this. Listen and obey. Uh, and what is the reason? What is the hope? The compelling best argument? Whatever else. Why you should obey? Because this God has made himself known. He has protected us. He has told us what he wants from us. He's revealed himself. And, and on top of all that, he seems to actually love us. Right? So, listening and obeying should be good. So, that was listen. Now... He says, listen, and then love. What's the greatest commandment? Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The, the command... <clears throat> the command here is to love God with our whole selves. Okay? This word love, this is a tricky word. We often hear of love and we hear emotion. Feelings. To love means we feel a certain way. Uh, feelings is part of it, but feelings does not adequately explain what love is. Otherwise, that becomes simply lust. I will care for you as long as you make me feel good. How does that sound? Does that sound like beautiful wedding vows? Right? I commit to you as long as I feel good about it. That's a heavy job for you to take on. You complete me. Let's get married. Right? That sounds pretty terrible. Um, love involves, yes, there are emotions. Um, but love doesn't say, I love you as long as you make me feel this way. Love says, even when I don't. That emotion is backed up with commitment. And this is why obedience is always associated or should be associated with love. Um, and God's call to obey is predicated on him making himself known. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of the house of slavery. You can trust me and love me. God is not asking us to simply close our eyes and go, I love you and uh, I'm not sure what I'm getting into. He makes it abundantly clear. We can trust him. And this is where we in our day, though we're not polytheistic necessarily, we get into the difficulties of the Lord being the one and only God. Um, we don't necessarily believe in, in other gods, uh, but we do believe, but this idea of supreme loyalty and loving with all of our being, oftentimes we may take that and that our ultimate, ultimate loyalty belongs to, uh, well, uh, me. Myself. To thine own self be true. You guys have heard this, right? Anybody remember where that comes from? Jason. Hamlet. Shakespeare. Anybody remember who says that in Hamlet? Do you know? Polonius. Who jumped in front? Was Tracy, was that you? All right. The smart crowd over here. Okay, now here's the tricky, and they'll know, but ignore them for a minute. Does anybody else know who Polonius is in Hamlet? Polonius is, he is the chief counselor of Claudius. Claudius is the ultimate villain in the play of Hamlet. He's given a speech to his own son, and he utters these words of ultimate self-devotion. One of the most formidable critics of English literature of the day, William Hazlitt, says this, Polonius is generally, generally regarded as wrong in every judgment he makes over the course of the play. He is the fool. And yet we have soaked that in, put it on t-shirts, made it our banner, and operated as if this is Bible. To thine own self be true. Spoken by the fool. And honestly, 
Uh, we're going to go back to David Foster Wallace here. You're going to hear him a lot. Um, maybe polytheism actually might be a better option than the material and self-worship type stuff. This is what he says. He says, here's something else that's weird but true in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life. There actually is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, I love that, JC, or Allah, or Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, some enviable set of uh, ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and, bu and beauty and physical allure, and you will always feel ugly. And then when time and age start showing you, uh, start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On the one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping this truth in front of our daily consciousness. All right. The God of Israel demonstrates through Israel that he is the God. He is the only God, none other in his counsel. And when he demonstrates that to us in our modern contemporary, so wonderfully and woefully educated uh, that there is no one else in his counsel includes me. This is not me and God running the show. Uh, our old pastor in Texas always used to say, resign your, uh, resign your uh, position as general manager of the universe. God says, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Your heart. In ancient texts, this actually probably includes your mind. It's the inner being. It's that gut inside you. Your moral agent, your character. And so in the New Testament, when you add mind, that brings in the information that we take in. What you know, your gathered knowledge. Your soul, this is hard to translate, but this is kind of the very core of your being. The core of your person has a lot to do with desires and motives and emotions. And then your strength is your fortitude, your actions, your behaviors, what you do. Now, if you keep in mind, almost all of Israel is polytheistic at this time. That's the way they've thought. That's the way they've been taught for 400 years. God rescued them and delivered them, but we're slow to change. And it's hard to change that repetition and those neuropaths that we've developed. It's hard to change just like simple beliefs. Have you ever noticed, have you ever known somebody who's like really hard and rough and has a very opinionated attitude and they become a Christian? And then they're hard and rough and has a very opinionated attitude with Jesus behind it? Anybody ever notice that? Because it takes time for that like grace and forgiveness part to sink in. Israel's been doing this. And so what does God do? Through Moses, he sits his people down and says, let me tell you about Heb's axiom. You're going to find out about it in a few thousand years. But trust me on this one. It's the way I made you to be. Verse 6, these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, 
when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Practice this belief. Practice your trust in this. Practice actually trusting God. Surround yourself with this at every turn. Talk about it in the morning and at night. Teach this. Pass this down. Change the neuro patterns of your kids with this, with this thought. And here's why. Because as soon as you leave this place, you're going to go right back to what you thought before. To walk into the promised land and immediately forget that it was me who gave you this land. You're going to walk into the land and think their gods are more powerful than ours. And I'm telling you, they don't exist. You're going to be tempted to forget that it was me who provided every part of this. So practice this. Put it everywhere. Um, and just like the human heart... When God says, I want you to practice loving me and I want you to surround yourself with it, that got turned into a law. <laughs> you became more holy if you had the frontlets between your eyes, the law on your doorposts, saying the prayers, making sure to do that. This became not the invitation to just be totally enveloped in the love of God and pursue him. It became a checklist. Right? Have we ever, have anybody else ever done that? Okay, just me. Generational from their time in Egypt, from the time, really, Genesis 3, our hearts are tempted to think that our hope comes from somewhere else. That our significance, that our value, that our life only has meaning and I only have value if... And we put it where our tendency from Genesis 3 is that's our formed, new formed pathways, right? It's what Joel talked about in opening up here and talking about our idolatries and what we put hope in. And what God is saying through Moses, and this is glorious, this is what God is saying through Moses, there is nowhere else. And of course, if you know the rest of the story, they don't get it. And it's hard for us to get it. Now, before I give you the practice for this week, um, I want to say something about what I believe to be the motive of God here. It gets down a few lines from this, and, and God says, do this because you're going to forget, right? You're going to be tempted to forget that I provided this. And then it says, for I, your God, am a jealous God. Now, we tend to look at that. Uh, a famous talk show host once said, you know, jealousy seems very petty. I can't believe a God would be jealous. Um, this is actually a profound thought. That a God would be jealous of his people and where their affections go because he knows what's good for us. Um, and here's, here's, what I want to, here's what I want to say about what I think God's motive is. Sometimes I think we can see this and we can, we can take our theology and fit the Bible into our theology. And sometimes we can look at this and say, God's motive is to reveal to us just how sinful we are. Maybe. I think that's going to be intrinsic in that. We're going to see that we can't live up to this. But I don't... The idea that God's up there going, ha, 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 see? Versus God up there going, I know you're not going to get this. 
I know this is going to be hard. I know the fallen heart is against me. But what I want for you is me. I'm jealous for that. What I want for all the whole world to make sense is me because I know what's good for you. I know what's good for the whole world. This is not God up there dangling the strings of puppets and saying, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna show you. It's God up there saying, I know you're gonna find this out and I know it's gonna be the hard way because that's what you do. And that will turn into a righteous judgment at times. But God's desire is for us to actually love him. Does that make sense? That motive? Is anybody still in here? It's really hot and humid outside. I know, like, I know we're, getting, we're missing the picnic, but kids, your kids would be in the mud and it'd be humid mosquitoes everywhere, so we're good. All right. Um, God's people that he revealed himself to will demonstrate fallen nature. We turn even this into a law. The idea of loving God, we turn it into a law. And just how much we love God, just how much doctrine we get right, just how many things that we're doing, and this is what makes me more righteous than you. I think God, like, weeps at that because we're missing it. Um, and they do just like we're all tempted to do. And we're going to need someone to fulfill this uh, this loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to need someone that f does that on our behalf. Uh, and that will be the hope that we have ultimately in Jesus. Our, Christ, our, our hope is that Christ has done this for his people. What we could not do. Um, not because God set us up to fail. But because God loves us. Christ satisfied our part of the covenant so that means we are set free to work on this, to trust more. It doesn't mean like, all right, cool, I'm in, so uh, I'm good. It actually means we're set free to pursue this, not in the hopes of becoming family, but because we are family. All right, so the practice this week. How do we practice realizing and understanding and operating? How do we form these new neural paths of saying God is in his heaven and he calls me his child? We don't default to that belief. How do we practice that? Um, for the follower of Jesus, our prayer not, is not necessarily the Shema, although the Shema is a great prayer, and if you want to memorize that and say that, I think that's glorious. But the Lord's Prayer, it's often been called the Christian Shema. Um, and I think it's a beautiful prayer to memorize, to recite over and over again. I would say it's a beautiful prayer to put frontless between your eyes, teach your kids growing up, put it on your doorposts and all that stuff, as long as you understand that that is figurative language. But what I'm going to have you do, this is, this is the new contemporary Deuteronomy version, uh, put it in reminders on your phone. So this is, what I, this is what I want you to do this week. Set three reminders on your phone. When you rise and when you sleep and probably sometime over the lunch hour. Although mine is loud during the lunch hour and it always inevitably seems to interrupt something important going on like a memorial service yesterday. Um, 
So, put a reminder on your phone three times a day to say the Lord's Prayer. If you want to get really uh, daring, um, kneel when you say it. You can say it as you walk along the road. You can say it as you drive along the path. Or, but try to pay attention to what you're driving. Although, you know, nobody else seems to be doing that right now. So, whatever. Uh, when you first get out of bed in the morning, um, say it before you get on tech. Let your phone remind you to stay off tech. Uh, say it before you go to bed at night. Put it on there and say this over and over again. Let different parts of this seep through and work their way into you. Surround yourself with this. The Lord's Prayer reminds us uh, that we are anticipating God's kingdom. It reminds us how we operate in that kingdom and what's happening, that we are forgiven and that we are also called to forgive, that God is our daily sustenance, that he is our provision, uh, all of those things. So it's beautiful. So um, let's say it together, all right? Everybody cool with that? All right, let's close with this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.